and I think that means we are live. It is Value After Hours. I'm Tobias Carlyle, joined as always Run edition. <laughs> by Jake Taylor and special guest Tim Travis, who's a specialist in banks, value investing. Is that fair, mate? Do you- That's fair, yeah. Uh, uh, value investing and a lot of the time, the uh, especially over the last decade, that's involved financials, so it makes sense. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna ask you about that. Is that it's not? It's not because you have any particular affinity for banks. It's just that it's been a cheap financials environment, so you've it's paid to become an expert in that area. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think also just working in the financial services industry, you know, you you get a feel for uh, the different uh, revenue streams of different companies like insurers or banks, and so you know, you just stay within your circle of competence. Um, but, but absolutely like we've had big positions in energy before large cap tech, healthcare kind of go wherever the value is. And just as more of like kind of a deep value guy, kind of like you are Toby, uh, as you know, it's a lot of financials, a lot of financials, a lot of basic <laughs> materials, busted tech these days, a little bit of busted tech around. Is it? Oh. When I, when I, when I, when I sort of started out in the early 2000s, it was mostly busted tech. That's the funny thing. You just buy like some shitty tech company on three times EBITDA, you know, not knowing if it's going to work or not, because there's always some bad news. They've lost a big contract or something like that. They're wholly dependent mm-hmm. on, they've got like a 50% client. So the money's, the, the revs aren't real. The EBITDA is not real. Somehow they figured it out. Three times goes to five times. That's buy cheap and pray. That's kind of my, that's my investment strategy these days. Those were fun. I mean, I just I remember Hewlett Packard. I think 2012, 2011 ish, maybe. And I remember after a string of just terrible acquisitions, uh, I remember buying that stock for like 20% free cash flow yield, and they got better <laughs> management. And and yeah, I mean, it, there was there was a lot there, and that's when the uh, enterprise part of the business was still uh, connected to it. And I know we've talked about Microsoft when it was trading at. 12 times earnings, you know, a little. It was over 10% decade. free cash flow, right? It was like 11, yeah. 11 something percent cash, 11 and a half percent might have been. It's, oh, I saw it at 11 and a half anyway, didn't buy it. Not that smart. <laughs> well, it was game over sh- at that point, right? Let me give some, yeah, that's right. Well, you had Barmer in charge and it was, had a year of revenues going down. So it didn't look that hot. It's San Diego, Comox Valley, Toronto, Brandon, Mississippi. Carava, Finland. All right. What's up? Las Vegas, York in the UK, Gothenburg, Weisbaden. Hope I said that. Bristol, England, Squatters Crag in Australia. What's up? Qatar, Aman Jordan. That's 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 just the that's straight down the list. That's a good spread. Well, what what's what's uh, there's I feel like we've got plenty of content for these. Every time we we log off. Something happens. We were, we spent all last episode talking to the uh, the big short boys about what catalyst was going to take down this. Like yeah. what would be the Lehman moment? And it turns out Silicon Valley Bank. That looked like it, but maybe not. Big rally today. What do you, do you, do you guys understand what happened with Silicon Valley Bank? What like what is Jake's going to tell us what a bank is, and then Tim's going to tell us what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. What's a bank? Uh. Well, in the most basic version of it, it's an institution that takes money in, usually on shorter term basis, lends it on a longer term basis, and collects the interest, the net interest margin difference between those two, and calls that earnings, and then uh, grows from there. 
Why, why, why are you not allowed to call? Why is it not earnings? No, it's earnings. I'm just, uh, I'm being a little glib. The regional banks make a lot more of their money. The little regional banks make a lot more of their money from loans than the big banks do. They're much more dependent on loans. The big banks have lots of other lines of service. They make money lots of different ways. Little banks yeah, make their money management. mostly on loans. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's it. A lot of people underestimate the diversification uh, of the larger banks, and I mean, you see them do pretty well in in just about any environment when volatility is spiking. I mean, I'm sure that that the big investment banks are printing money uh, with the volatility we've seen over the last week. Um, and then obviously, you're right. The regionals are more are more uh, net interest income uh, oriented, um, but. Yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to start on the Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, really a classic 1980s style bank run, kind of with a modern twist. Uh, you know, if you if you look at their deposit base, the growth was uh, extraordinary. I think it was like 81% last year. I could be wrong on that. And, and it was up a lot the year before too. And the depositors were predominantly, um, you know, venture, venture capital funds, VC companies, um, and you know, a lot of those are, are, are burning cash. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they're needing access to funds for payroll and whatnot. And the management of Silicon Valley bank, instead of kind of, you know, understanding the sensitivity there, it seems like they invested in, in longer duration, uh, securities, uh, to, to benefit. And they did it, you know, the timing was bad They they got so many deposits when interest rates were so low, uh, that they took way too much risk on that and, and didn't hedge appropriately. And then- Let me just, you know, before you move yeah, on sure, there, because sure. this is this is worth diving into because it looks, what they've done is they've stuck most of it into treasuries, right? Treasuries and-, and Mortgage-backed yeah, securities. And MBS, okay. yeah. yeah. What's hurt them though? Is it the treasuries or the MBS that's hurt them or both potentially, both, I guess? Both, I mean, yeah. both both would trade at a, you know, if you're doing a mortgage at two point. One five, two point five percent on a, a thirty-year per se. You know that mortgage would be trading at a, a pretty big discount right now. Um, so, so both of those hurt them, and and we've seen that in, in most of the insurance companies and the banks. You know, you've seen book values decline unless there's something aberrational where they're able to kind of buy back stock at a discount or something like that. Um, so that that part of it's normal. But what's what really got Silicon Valley Bank was what seems like almost a coordinated bank run. Um, you know, you have you have depositors, in this case, pretty large VC funds and, and companies, and they're able to communicate and say, hey, we're pulling our money out, maybe you should too. And with technology nowadays, you know, and that can affect any bank, of course, but, but especially Silicon Valley Bank, you know, it seems almost like it was a coordinated bank run. Uh, and to what end? That, to, to like make a short payoff, or, or that's that's a good question, and and realistically, that's a question that should be being asked. And and so, I mean, I'd be curious who is buying credit default swaps um, on on that bank and other banks, uh, or buying puts or or shorting the stocks, uh, because that it seems a lot like a coordinated bank run. I don't I don't know what would have prompted you know, that's so fast. I mean, I, I have no interest in Silicon Valley Bank. I've never used them. I've never owned the stock, neither with uh, the other ones, the Signature or, uh, or uh, the Silvergate. Yeah, but, but, but bank runs, uh, just like Jake was saying, I mean, I mean, anyone would be susceptible to a bank run 
Um, you know, and I think that people are need to kind of focus on what what prompted that in the first place. I think one, you know, we've talked before about this, uh, the idea of what are called normal accidents. Charles Perot wrote a whole book about it. And we, you know, we talked about it in the context of a, like a nuclear power plant and what, what ends up in these systems, the more complexity and the more tightly coupled a system is, the more at risk it is from small things cascading and turning into complete, you know, disaster. And so you think about Silicon Valley Bank's uh, deposit base, that's a very tightly coupled system. It's like everybody knows each other. It could get through a network very quickly that they want to pull their money. And you're just in a much more fragile situation at that point, which makes them their long lending even more idiotic um, to not recognize that, boy, like we could really get, we could get called to the mat here if, if everyone who, you know, runs in the same circles decides to change their mind about who they bank with. And, I, you know, I think, um, on top of that, you also had the the fact that the you know most banks have a lot less uninsured deposit base because they're you know it's regular people that are under two hundred fifty thousand dollars covered by the FDIC. This was a weird bank in that it had a you know a a very large uninsured deposit base as their as a, a lot of their base. So they 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 were even more you know blowing in the wind there. So it's. This is kind of a perfect storm of banking things that could happen, um, but you know, wouldn't be surprised if the solvency issue is. This was a liquidity issue for them because they couldn't tap resources fast enough on the asset side to meet the the liquidation side of the deposit base. That same solvency issue, though, that they had from bonds not being worth what they were two years ago, is I think it still exists in a lot of other places and. I, you know, I'm not entirely sure that we're completely out of the woods on this. The FDIC or the basically like covering everything above 250 now helps with the liquidity issue, but the solvency issue still yeah. is floating around there. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure we're like all, all done and hunky dory now. Let me ask, um, what else could they have done? Like, I, from their perspective, I guess they would say we were taking our, deposit money and we're putting it into the safest asset base that's out there. I heard Meb interviewed, Meb Faber interviewed on Fox Business on Sunday night. And he oh, yeah. said something Good like job, I retweeted it. It's on my, it's on my, it's on my Twitter stream. He said, I like they said, you know, what what happened with Silicon Valley Bank? And he said, um, they put all of their money into assets. I liked his explanation because it's so simple. They put all of their money into assets that wouldn't do very well if interest rates went up and interest rates went up. And that collapsed the asset side of their bank, but I, I, and I, I think that's a fair description of what happened. I don't know. I don't. I'm no have no have no great expertise in this, but I had a look at. That looked to me like they were putting in treasuries, and I just thought, what, what else? Like there was this period in time when it didn't look like interest rates were. Interest rates have been crushed for a long time, and I think you know you and I might have said, JT, that the long run interest rates are around six percent, but it's hard to imagine how we get back there in any sort of short period of time. So it's isn't it. Wasn't it sensible, logical to just be sticking them into those treasuries? Like, what else could they have possibly done? Well, you got to also remember, duration. though, you got to, yeah, shorter duration for sure. But you got to also understand that they have uh, liquidity requirements uh, and, and you know, they're encouraged to own heavy proportions of, of, of treasuries to meet those. Um, the big banks, the Citigroups, the JP Morgans, the Bank of Americas, their capital ratios are are reflective 
of uh, the change in the AOCI uh, on their on their held for investment portfolio. So so those ones, uh, you know, what's the AOCI? Accumulated yeah. other comprehensive income. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and so and so you know you see the changes in book value and then you see the changes in how it kind of impacts the capital ratios. Smaller banks uh, are not are are not as susceptible to that. Uh, they're not they're not under the same guidelines. I, I think they changed the number to maybe two hundred and fifty. I forget what it is. It's still a massive number, but but they they increased the number that it originally was going to be that you could could escape because it's pretty onerous. But the thing is, is, is the held for investment uh, notation is, is, I think, actually pretty reasonable because for a bank to take duration risk, whether it's on a loan or it's on a, a security portfolio, you don't want them marking everything to market. If it's an investment bank, that could be different. But, but in a situation where you know the job of the bank is to facilitate capital, you want them to be able to hold some of those securities for a longer time. Still, you want to hedge your interest rate risk and that sort of thing. And that's what the good banks do. But these are not these are not 2008 MBS securities that they're holding. They're government bonds that ultimately the credit risk is not there. There is interest rate risk, so they trade at a discount now. But ultimately, they will accrue to par. And don't forget that a lot of these banks were sitting on massive many billions of dollars of AOCI gains prior to uh, the the interest rate increases. And so, you know, it, it goes the same way. You don't want to give too much credit when their things are more favorable and you don't want to give too much, uh, you know, blame when, when things are negative, especially when the government has wanted, the regulators have wanted them to hold, you know, these, these types of liquid assets. I'm not excusing what Silicon Valley Bank did. They took ridiculous duration risk without hedging it. And especially they have a very, you know, uh, idiosyncratic uh, deposit base. And I, I do think, you know, you need to look at how that bank run occurred because you don't want that. That's not healthy for, for anything going on in this country or this economy. Do you think that that means that the problems are idiosyncratic to Silicon Valley Bank? Or do I you do. think that this is potentially more systematic? Okay. I think it is. I mean, if you look at the ones that got hit, it was... It was um, uh, Silver Silver Lake, I believe it was Silver Silver Lake. I think it was called. Um, it was Silicon, and it was the the uh, signature. And so you both those had two of those had crypto exposure. The other one was was you know a lot of VC funds. I mean, if you the thing is you don't want to change the the regulatory rules or the capital ratios in the middle of the game. They already did the smart thing. I mean as they, they basically doubled the capital requirements and the liquidity ratios after the global financial crisis. So banks are a lot safer than they had ever been. Um, and so, you know, these banks can meet their, their requirements. But if you're saying, oh, well, you know, you lost money because of higher interest rates and somehow, you know, just because you meet the actual capital requirements that the laws dictate, you know, because you've lost money on your held for investment portfolio, somehow you're not you're not solvent or whatever, because if all your depositors leave you, you're not viable. I, you know, we need to we need to not have bank runs. And so I don't know what that means for the FDIC. Uh, I I think it's tough for them right now to do anything but guarantee those deposits. And I'm, I'm not pro that, especially not in the Silicon Valley case. But I think that now you've you've crossed that bridge and it's tough to you know, differentiate between different banks or different depositors. 
so a couple of things there. One, uh, I don't know the exact number. I'd be curious if someone else could ferret this out, but I thought I saw at one point that there's, call it $1 trillion worth of uninsured deposits in banks right now. Um, so which effectively the Fed has put onto their own balance sheet now, like that's a liability, like they're underwriting another trillion dollars, uh, you know, where if they have to come out of pocket for that somehow, where's that going to come from? Well, well, the asset side is is going to come out of thin air, like they print the money to to give it to to cover that. I, I mean, how is that not potentially going to be inflationary, uh, which just keeps us raising the rates and potentially like we're going to be in this difficult situation, I think, for a while. Uh, the second thing. So even let's ignore like the panic and the bank runs, the psychology side of things. And let's look at if you're a bank and your deposit base, like how do you keep your deposit base? You have to offer a competitive interest rate to your to the clients for them to stay. And if you locked in a bunch of really low yielding long-term assets like MBSs and and uh, treasuries and someone else lent short term and now they're rolling back over with a 5%, let's say, return on their asset side, they can offer a much more competitive rate now for their to depositors. So interactive brokers, let's take as an example, versus maybe Schwab, who might be on the longer side of things, interactive brokers kept theirs low and now can offer and will will absolutely go out of their way to advertise how much more they can offer for cash balances relative to their competitors. And so how eventually just the economics of like being offered five instead of two because of the, the nature of the way the bank structured themselves, I think erodes that potential base and how quickly that happens can look like a bank run. And it doesn't have to be a panic, it can start slow and then build up from there. And then it turns into the psychology part of it kicks in and now people are, are fleeing. Um, I mean, it's a a very, yeah, it is. It can be a phase shift. I think it's a, it's a fragile situation right now. I mean, have we seen, is that what Silicon Valley bank is? Is that the the first of the phase shift that we're seeing? They were probably the most exposed to, you know, being super long duration and, and high interest rate sensitivity along with a very like like aggregated risk pool of depositors. So if it kind of makes sense why it might be the kind of canary in the coal mine, but it could happen at other banks on a slower, maybe like more played out basis. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me. Well, where you see that is, I mean, banks can manage for that. So, you know, going into like, let's say last year, a lot of them had excess deposits. Uh, because there was so much cash on hand and, and interest rates were low. And so they, they, they almost they had too many deposits. And so, you know, they they've back, actually been surprised at at how well they've been able to uh, benefit from higher interest rates without paying more on the on the deposit side of things. You know, different banks, uh, you know, have have various advantages. And, and so uh, a company like a Bank of America or Wells Fargo, you know, they, they offer services beyond maybe just, you know, interest rate. Um, and so, and so you might have, like we were talking about earlier before the show, just, you might have your payroll or, or your, you know, estimated taxes in the accounts at, at those types of banks and you're not nearly as, as rate sensitive. So I think where you'd see it is not some like climactic massive thing. I think you see, okay, deposit rates are going to go up a little bit, net interest income or net interest margin 
gets squeezed a little bit. There's plenty of room for that to happen. That is what's expected to occur. You know, the idea that, that, I mean, don't forget, they offer CDs. They offer, you know, a lot of the banks now, almost all of them have some types of investment accounts associated with it. So, I mean, you could keep it in house, you know, uh, you know, where, where they're still benefiting from it, where it takes on a different phenomenon is when it's a bank run, you know? So, so yes, net interest margins should be squeezed. That's better for everybody. The banks have gotten away with paying too low. I totally agree with that. But a huge difference is, I mean, like people are trying to say like Schwab, you know, has has an issue there. Um, well, they have huge, huge liquidity resources um, that they can use. They have plenty of capital, plenty of access to capital. And the thing that we haven't mentioned, guys, is that if you just take out bank runs and leave all the other factors in play, including credit, including commercial real estate, everything, they're still making a ton of money. Like these are, this is not a 2008, it's not even a 2011. Profitability is so much higher going into this. The reserves because of CECL accounting are so much higher reflective of a recessionary environment that hasn't materialized yet. So I think we need to separate, you know, the bank run aspect of it with a, a solvency aspect. Uh, I think that that's important and hasn't, I haven't seen enough of that. I think it's been a lot of kind of panic the last few days, understandably. <laughs> do banks do better in a rising rate environment or a falling rate environment? Depends. It depends on credit. Um, I mean, so so they're making way more money on uh, net interest income uh, over the last you know year and a half. Uh, I mean, it's huge for for Bank of America, for Citigroup, for all of all of them. Uh, pretty much. But then you also have, you know, the changes in reserve. So, uh, you know, credit was outperforming for years. 2019 was a great year for credit. And then with the, the pandemic and the lockdowns, you know, they built up huge reserves, but but the credit losses didn't really materialize due to the stimulus. And so now you're seeing normalization. They're, they're already more heavily reserved because they need to reserve now for the life of the loans. Another thing that doesn't get talked about enough is Cecil accounting is a huge change from how it was before. Um, so, so it depends. So they're going to build reserves, you know, especially for stuff like commercial real estate, you know, credit cards, they already have pretty big reserves that'll keep creeping up a little bit. They'll make up for that on interest rates. And there's plenty of room for reduced net interest margins. And that, that should be the consequence. There shouldn't be bank runs. Do you feel like, so probably the catalyst for, you know, if there's going to be a catalyst for any sort of, uh, you know, volatility in the stock market, it's unlikely to come from something like Silicon Valley Bank, unlikely to come from something like the regional bank. It's, it's going to come from somewhere else. I mean, it, it always seems to filter, you know, two banks at some point. I mean, I mean, especially right now, it's, I, I think you get three weeks from now, we'll see earnings. Uh, three or four weeks from now, we'll see earnings for the the banks, and they'll probably be pretty good. You know, they'll probably be pretty good, and I'd 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 estimate that most of those metrics will be pretty healthy. Um, so I think you know the businesses are doing well, but there was a different panic phenomenon. I think that not saying that there aren't fundamental issues with duration, and that's obviously Silicon Valley Bank made idiotic mistakes in in regards to duration and their deposit portfolio. But I think all of that is very manageable. But but you're I think what you're seeing is a, a bear raid, and you know it almost looked like somewhat coordinated, coordinated bank run on on Silicon Valley Bank, and and then 
the signature thing. I saw like 20% of their deposits. It was just fear running the day on uh, Thursday and Friday and Monday too. What was it? Was it whatever it was, Silver Lake or Silvergate, whatever that, Gate. like the crypto type bank. Was that the thing that kind of, tri- that something happened there that kind of stumbled and then all of the VCs have chatted to each other and said, oh, Silicon Valley Bank's also. I mean, it's possible it's not coordinated in, in the sense that they were trying to achieve something. They were just like, hey, we're all pulling our money out. We're going to stick it somewhere else. I don't know where we're going to put it. Crypto crypto solves this. Exactly. No, it totally is. And and I think it's, it scared the market on Sunday night. I, the, the policy where they're um, taking taking uh, treasury bonds or mortgage-backed securities and, you know, exchanging liquidity, you know, that's very favorable for, for the banks. I, I agree with Jake. I think it is inflationary, you know, to do something like that. And so there's negative consequences to it as well. But then when a signature bank kind of got taken under, it's like, okay, well, who's the next one? You know, who's the next one? And so, you know, the, the next one in line has actually been a pretty well-run bank from my understanding of it. Uh, First Republic. Um, and so I, I think there just has to be a delineation as, is okay, well, what, what is it? Is it a stock price declining that is going to do this? Or is it a certain, you know, amount of depo- deposits going out or, or what? I just think you have to, um, you know, have clear, a, a clear regulatory framework, which, which, you know, should exist. And, and so I think if, 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 if the dominoes stop there, you know, I think this could be a very short-lived crisis, and you just get back to the economy. Okay, how you know how do offices do? How do people hold up in credit? That sort of thing. It's hard to imagine that that any regional bank is going to be very uh, bullish with their loan book right now, right? Like they've got to be pulling back the horns big time, which should be somewhat contractionary, right? For a for kind of from an ac- economic standpoint. Definitely. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank looks like it's out there being pretty aggressive. They got the, <laughs> they, they're fully backstopped and they want the deposits back. I mean, that's the deposit side. I don't know how much they're lending on the other side. I don't know if I'd want to be lending too much. Well, who's going to lend San Francisco. for, you know, home construction or, you know, like just your neighborhood bank that's going to loan to, you know, build a strip mall or something like I, I would imagine that there's a fair amount of, of risk appetite that's been sucked in with this. 100%. Like I, I, I've seen evidence of that, uh, you know, especially Orange County is a big real estate uh, Mecca, like, like a lot of the other, you know, Sunbelt areas. And, and I think, I think there's evidence of that and people are trying to resort to things like hard money lending uh, and, and that sort of stuff. And that capital is very expensive. So you're exactly right. And there's, that's, you know, deflationary in itself. And the other thing that should get mentioned is just, when you saw treasuries uh, uh, rise in value and, and rates drop like they did, you know, so Crazy, severely the it? last few days, that that has, you know, an offsetting impact on the on the AOCI number, right? So, yeah. so it, it turns that number, you know, pretty dramatically. I, obviously, some of that's been reversed today with the hot you know, core CPI data, but that's the, We're that's just the like benefit bouncing of off the guardrails here. Before, uh... Oh man, it's crazy. Jesus. <laughs> I had a look at the, uh, the, the 10, three inversion today. So the, you know, the data goes back to January, 1982. So it's not comprehensive that the little, whatever that SC, the Edgar SEC website, whatever it is. Um, the widest it's ever been was 1.32 or the, the steepest it's ever been 1.32. And that was in January 2023. And today it's 1.32 again, 
Mm. So it's the second, it's the second reading. It's the steepest it's ever been since 1982. I tweeted that out. Uh, I don't know if any of that means uh, anything. <laughs> I have no idea what all that means. Like I've read Cam Harvey's disavowed his own research in relation to this thing. Every other one has had a pretty nasty recession that's followed. Everybody's saying it's not going to happen this time. I'm just kind of, at this point, I feel like I'm just a scientist. I'm just interested in seeing what happens. I, I don't have a I, view yeah, one way or the other. I feel more like I'm watching a play. I just want to see like what happens in the third act here. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel. I, mean, I still think we did see a technical recession last year. You know, whether you want to call it one or not, you know, we can define things however we want. But there was a technical recession last year. And, and I do wasn't think a recession, wasn't a bailout. Especially yeah. if you use real terms. <laughs> so. I mean, what is, I mean, prices moving up 8%, but, you know, unit oh, volumes yeah. of everything not are down. So I'm not sure how you, <laughs> how you consider that not, not a recession. I actually have some sympathy for the view, not a technical recession. I, I understand why they said that, but, you know, the definition is the definition. But I still think that there's, you know, the, every other indicator is there. I don't understand why everybody's so eager to suggest that it's not a recession. There's not one coming. I think there's a recession coming. I, I think there's a recession. I don't think it has to be. I mean, our our recent memory of a recession is 2008, which, I mean, is... It's just like when people tell stories of their grandparents or whatever, saving the tinfoil, you know, uh, stemming from the, the Great Depression. The Great Recession was traumatic, you know, depending yeah. on your industry or uh, I mean, if you were in the markets, I mean, we all we all remember it was it was un unbelievable. Um, so well, that's, I, why, I mean, that's why banks, have, that's why financials have been so cheap for so long, because everybody yeah. thinks that the next one looks like the last one. True. If you look at, yeah, if you look at like, you take like Citigroup's tangible book value per share. I mean, obviously since, since uh, uh, after they had to raise all the capital and stuff like that. But, but what you see is you see actual growth in some of those uh, tangible metrics, uh, but you see the valuation just keep, you know, staying really cheap. Um, so uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, remember the banks, I mean, Citigroup probably in 2000, it probably traded at five, seven times book value or something AIG too you know a lot of them did and and uh, return on that's the thing return on equities are a bit lower now I, I, there's the the banking system is a lot dramatically dramatically safer than it was before which is why I think this is kind of a concocted um crisis and, and you know it's like it's like sure you know if you assume that there's a bank run on like these massive enterprises that have all these earnings history and 50 year histories and they have to somehow sell all their assets, which they were, they're allowed legally to, to say held for investment. Yeah. That's going to be a problem for anybody, but I, I don't see why, you know, you'd get those bank runs. I would be curious to know, like, you know, who, who bought credit default swaps um, prior, prior to, you know, that bank run occurring. It'd be interesting. Somewhere Michael Burry smiles in the dark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What did, yeah. was that tweet? Did you guys see his tweet yesterday? Yeah. When it, I, yeah. I don't know if it was sarcasm or what. Uh, you never know. He's he's an interesting guy. But I, I you think know, one thing I haven't uh, heard anyone ask is um, so if one of the core issues was that rates moved up quickly from are you know relatively low. What's happening in Europe or Japan? where these a lot of the similar dynamics might be playing out of rates moving up quite a bit from in in that case like negative 
just moving from negative to positive, there's a lot of convexity down at that zero bound as far as bond pricing goes. I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some shoes to drop there too, eventually. Yeah, there's, I think they have to hold a lot of, I mean, just like US banks, they have to hold a, a ton of liquidity. Um, so that's that's part of it. The other thing is the European banks, they, they had to, and, and Japan, I don't follow Japan as closely, uh, but they had to figure out ways to make money when there was basically negative interest rates. You know what I mean? What do they so, do? Have a raffle? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do a sausage yeah. sizzle at the front of the bank. Whether it's wash. Fleet, yeah, fleet financing, insurance. There's there's lots mm -hmm. of different ways, diversification uh, between different regions and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I think I mean when you see eighty percent deposit growth, and then it you know they just pile it into a bunch of longer duration. MBS and treasuries at one and a half percent and the deposit base is what it is. And I've heard that, I mean, I don't know for sure, you know, I've heard it, okay, well, we want stock in your company and we'll extend loans or stock options, that sort of thing. Um, so it's, you know, those people abandoned them and, and there was a run. And I mean, I just, I just think that the idea of extrapolating that to all these other banks, uh, you know, is a big mistake. JT, do you want to do your? We didn't do your veggies last week. Do you want to? Oh yeah. So it's, a, it's sure. a segue, and then it's not much of a segue, but yeah, <laughs> it's the best I could do. Yeah. Uh. So, yeah, this is um. This uh is inspired by I read this book called Ice Age, uh, the theory that came in from the cold by John Gribben, and and John Gribben, I've done other books of his before, and he's like a really interesting uh, author. I like him a lot. And this actually came from Munger recommended this in the early 2000s at one of the annual meetings. And this book is about uh, mostly about this guy named uh, Mulatin Mulankovic, Milankovic, I guess, maybe I'm not sure how it's said. Uh, but he was a Serbian scientist born in 1879. And he grew up in war torn Serbia. And which at that time was stuck between like two decaying empires. You had the Austro-Hungarian and the Turkish Ottoman Empire, and they were like fighting and they would like trade Serbia back and forth uh, and basically in the fighting, which is kind of an awful situation in a lot of ways. But but he was trained as a civil engineer and he's actually well-recognized expert in designing very large concrete structures at that time. Like, you know, foreign uh governments would contract him to like come and you know be a, a consultant on these like giant you know infrastructure projects but he had this side hobby that was nearly all consuming for him and what he wanted to understand was how did the sun drive long term climate and actually not just for earth but for other planets in the solar system as well and it took him like literally 30 years of these hand calculations because back then there wasn't a computer to crunch all this stuff. He's with a paper and a pen, literally like working the math out for the sun and like hitting the earth at different points and like how much energy is transferred from the sun to the earth and how does that impact climate. And part of the reason that it took 30 years for him to do it is because like he had to go off to war a few times and- <laughs> You know, like during World War One, he was captured and imprisoned. And luckily he had all his like what he called his cosmic papers with him. And so he like was sitting in a cell, like working interrupted on all of this math. Uh, so it's kind of a you, know, you think about, you know, scientists today conducting research. You don't think about them doing it from, a, a, you know, a prison cell uh, with a so pen and anyway, pe pencil and paper. Yeah, with a pencil and paper. Uh, so anyway, Milankovic, uh, he created this comprehensive mathematical model 
that calculates the differences in solar radiation at various Earth latitudes uh, and along with the, the co corresponding surface temperatures. And the model is sort of like a climate time machine in a lot of ways. Like you can look forward and backward using it. Uh, and so uh, he hypothesized that long-term collective effects of changes in Earth's position relative to where the sun is, is a strong driver of Earth's long-term climate. And so basically like in this, that, that those changes were responsible for triggering, you know, glacial periods, AKA ice ages. And so, um, he looked at the Earth's orbital movements, and there are really like three things that go towards that. And I'll try to move through these quickly since it's kind of you know esoteric science stuff. But the first is the shape of Earth's orbit, what is which is not perfectly you know circular. It's there's it's called eccentricity, um, and so that is due actually to the gravitational pull of Ju of Jupiter and Saturn. Even though the Sun is like makes up a huge part of the mass of our solar system. Um, J Jupiter and Saturn are such that they're big enough that they actually impact the the, the circle that that uh, Earth makes around the Sun. Um, so anyway, like so, currently Earth's uh, eccentricity is near its least elliptical. It's like it's it's most circular, and therefore, and it's actually slowly decreasing in the cycle. And that takes about a hundred thousand years, just based on where Japan, uh, Jupiter, and Saturn are. Uh, the next thing that impacts it is ang the angle of Earth's axis tilted with respect to to like its orbital plane, which is is called obliquity. Uh, and so that is actually the reason that we have seasons. So the greater the axial tilt, the more extreme the season due to being tilted toward or away from the sun. Um, and so Earth's axis today is currently at 23 degrees, which is about halfway in between the two extremes that it that it moves around in. And uh, that happens on about 41,000 year cycles. Like how much does it tilt? And then the third thing is the direction of Earth's axis of rotation. It, it, it's pointed. And so that's called precision, uh, P-R-E-C-I-S-S-I-O-N. And that is, as the Earth as the Earth rotates, it kind of wobbles a little bit around its axis. And so, and this is actually due to tidal forces caused by the gravitational influence of the sun and the moon. Um, so th this is the Earth kind of bulges at the equator because of this gravitational pull, and so there's like a little bit of a wobble to it, and so that actually changes somewhat the the uh, the effects of the sun hitting the Earth, and that has about a twenty five thousand year cycle. So you have this like hundred thousand, forty four hundred thousand, and then like twenty five thousand, and all of those are moving on different kind of of cycles, and so they they line up and then they like move away from each other over different time periods, and you you sketch all that math out. And you end up with you know these climates that happen over periods of time, and they're actually kind of measurable. And so, what ended up happening was that he had this theory, and he actually died in 1958. And his model at that point was like largely discredited because there was no way to really prove it. Uh, but they they started doing these drillings into the into the um, the sediment of in the ocean, like deep sea, where it's actually like very little amount of silt is laid down, but it's a very consistent amount. And so they can they can then date it and using carbon dating, um, like they could figure out like how how deep is the sediment? Like, what does it look like? And then there's there are indicators within there that of actually like um, microbial like DNA that they capture from like what died at that time and, and then fell down to the to land on the bottom. And they can tell like how, what was the temperature actually based on like putting all these pieces of the puzzle together. And it, it turns out that like he was, he was pretty right about all this stuff. Uh, and so 
um, the like NASA's website says that these this Milankovitch cycle only explains about twenty five percent of our current like climate, um, and like the other part, like they're leaving open for more of like man made stuff that you know is. I, and I don't want to get into like a bunch of political, you know, which is what climate has kind of turned into. But um, <clears throat> so let's let's like zoom out and get to our tortured analogy of all this. Um, you know. This is it the was, best part when you got to bring it back. Yeah. Oh, let's try to land it. Shit. Um, <laughs> um, so it was actually, it was a very counterintuitive finding for Milankovitch's work uh, because it's, it's not the colder winters that actually lead to ice ages, which you might think. It's actually the buildup of these huge glaciers that overtook most of Northern Europe and Canada and the Northern US roughly 20,000 years ago, they came from actually like mild summers. So the summer didn't get hot enough to melt the ice off. And then the winter just kept laying more and more of it down. And so it's, it's actually mild summers that were the, that call it the problem of creating an ice age. And similarly, you know, I think when we have cheap debt for a very long time, accommodative monetary policy and fiscal policy, bailouts, which, by the way, I wrote, I wrote all this piece like before anything was happening, uh, you know, in the last week. Um, and, and we really we shield the economy from bankruptcies, which if you look at the bankruptcy numbers over the last 10 years, like it's been record low bankruptcies happening, which happens when you have cheap money. Like you can always just sort of borrow and extend and keep the game going. Right. Um, but what I think you end up with is is very mild financial summers, and therefore you don't get the burning off of the ice, and you it builds up, and and then when it actually does get cold, like you end up with a potentially like a financial ice age where you know it it becomes a much more devastating consequence because actually the life at that you know is not adapted to that level of of ice uh, and and coldness, so. You know, you're it's you're sort of setting yourself up for bigger problems by not actually having a little bit warmer summers that burn off the burn off the ice uh, in a financial sense. So, I don't know if I landed that one or not. But I like uh, the analogy. L yeah. Let me let me ask you though: Isn't Japan is like I don't know how far ahead of the U.S. And I I, I perceive Japan as being a little bit further ahead of the U.S. in terms of they've got much more debt much more government debt relative to the size of their population. They have historically had a very, uh, you know, it's one of the biggest economies in the world, um, the, lots of innovation, um, also one of the older populations in the world yeah. and a huge amount of government debt. So I think in some sense there, I don't know if the US is necessarily going in that direction, but that's like the, the sentinel or the position that you could get in if you don't reverse before you get to that point. And it doesn't yeah. seem to me like like nothing really bad has happened so far for Japan. Like so far is doing a lot of work in that sentence. But do you think that's yeah. fair? Like I, there's some it feels like there should be some tipping point at some at some point, but evidently Japan hasn't got there yet and they're a generation ahead. Tell me what's wrong with that with that analogy. With that, what's what's wrong? What's how's that flawed? Well, I think I, I mean I I don't think that there are the exact same correlations between the U.S. and Japan in that the I think the vibrancy of the U.S. economy is is quite a bit different. I think the um, you have a very homogenous population with no immigration in Japan, right? Uh, which I think actually allows you to s like suffer more in in certain ways. Like you just won't make changes because you know, everyone sort of is in it together. Um, you know, it's like very family oriented, kind of collectivist in a lot of ways that the U.S. isn't. Uh, so, 
you know, we have a lot more immigration. We have, I think, a more vibrant economy that that changes more and that is willing to adapt to whatever the conditions are. Whereas I don't I don't get the sense that Japan has has been as it's more of an ossified system that is, is, you know, kind of a little more static and therefore it sort of just like decays more. I, I don't, I'm not sure the U S fits that mold necessarily. I do agree though. Like, you know, debt to GDP numbers. There's a lot of things like, like zombification, all of that yeah. is, does seem to have some parallels. Um, but I don't know. I think we, I would be hopeful that we are vibrant enough to to maybe avoid that path because like growth is what solves all of these problems, right? Like, how do you get rid of debt problems? You grow out of them. Inflate um, it so, away, print money. Well, that's that's one one way, um, but ideally, <laughs> the better way is the, that's the way we're doing it, isn't it? GDP per capita is the important number here, and so you know that if you can grow the GDP per capita in such a way that that shrinks the the obligations of the liability side as such, um, you know, that's, that's ideal. I mean, that's kind of what we did in world war after world war two. And we had a very large debt base, um, you know, that we financed the war. We, we then grew out of that, that debt issue over the next, you know, 30 years, but. Japan said that they don't allow companies to go bankrupt. They allow a lot of cross holdings right. so that they have those zombie companies that Basically, they can't, they just, the business has shrunk so much, they just can't service their debt anymore, but they just let them keep on lumbering on because they employ so many jobs. People. Yeah. Are we sort of starting to do that? Uh, I mean, in our, probably the most un, uncharitable version of, I, we'll see. I mean, it, a lot of it depends on how do we respond to the next time that there's, there's stress. Do we allow the system to cleanse or do we no just chance. keep like, papering over the the bullet wound um, we, we've shown we've shown what we're going to do haven't we? we we all know you can write you know we can we know exactly what's going to happen this they're going to the argument this whole way through has been the federal hike interest rates until something breaks so people are like well silicon valley bank something broke. broke yeah so therefore they should stop but at the same time now we've got red hot inflation readings they're going to have to keep on raising rates to deal with that when they cut the market will, will fall over at some point and they'll cut. I mean, the market is down on the year, down on the six month, down on the one month, down on the five day, up a little bit today, up a lot today, to be fair. I, I kind of feel like we're, it, it's this, we, we are seeing this slow motion crash. We just haven't seen the final, like we haven't seen the face of the market yet. You know, the, the market shows you its face every, we saw it in March, 2020 at the bottom. When it's just full on panic. When I open Twitter and get a contact, get a contact high from the, from the yeah, fear. From the fear. That's when is you this, know that we're is there. This is why you made uh, made Wiley Coyote the, for when you oh, posted you go, the, in go, Twitter. Go back the, and look at them. I've been doing a few they crash yeah. test dummies. I think last week. Because he's not looking down, therefore he won't fall as long as he yeah. doesn't look down. <laughs> yeah, that's my point. What do you think, Tim? I mean, I, th I think last year, if you look at it, I mean, bonds have never had a year like that uh, since they've been like tracking the performance. So, I mean, there was there was a lot of carnage. And that's what's kind of interesting now is that the the, the real damage was last year in rel relative to interest rates. You know, so a lot of those kind of losses, you know, are 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 of what we saw. We saw last year. They don't necessarily always have to realize it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you could be right. I mean, I mean, I think that. I think that there's, you know, fertile ground uh, for, you know, more of a sell-off. I also think that, 
you know, there's there's some decent signs like the consumer is still relatively strong. It's can be pretty hard to find, you know, employees that unemployment is pretty low. Um, you know, if 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 inflation does uh, slow down a bit and, and the Fed stops raising rates, obviously, that would help a lot of industries. I, I don't know how realistic that is in the in the short term, you know, that they could actually cut or anything like that. So. I mean, I think if there's a recession, recession, I think it could be a manageable one as long as as long as it's you know based on root fundamentals. I think what I what I don't like about just kind of the current the current crisis is that I feel like it's somewhat manufactured, um, and mm-hmm. that it's not something that necessarily needs to occur. But but if you if you yell fire in a crowded movie theater, you know you're going to create a problematic situation. Um, so. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, something that should be watched out for. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I think it's probably more of an accident than than coordination. I, I think it's, but I don't. Obviously, I don't know. But I, I like, I, I like Han, Hanlon's razor on this one. What, what's that? Never attribute to malice that which can be explained by stupidity. Yeah, it could be a combination of both. I mean, it it could it could be a combination of both. I mean. The bank made its share of problems, you know, clearly, like I, I have no compassion for what the, the management strategy of that bank was uh, by any means. But, you know, to get an actual run on the bank, you know, it, it's it's interesting how that came about. And just the fact that it, you know, it's VC companies and all their portfolio, that's not normal. That's not like how the deposits are at, at your local regional bank. Um, so it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And and yeah, the one thing I think, just, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask a question. Do you think, so this, the amount of money that was pulled out of Silicon Valley Bank is kind of staggering, like how fast it happened. Yeah. Do you think that our today's tools, and let's say the Fed as one of them, as a, a big tool, um, pun intended. I agree with uh, that has characterization. A, are they, is that well suited for today's world where things can happen just incredibly fast? Like they, I'm worried that they're just going to be kind of always fighting the last, you know, data point that came in and like the world is just moving so quickly that they're like, isn't that always the case? Isn't that always yeah, the but case? Maybe more so than, I mean, how they like a huge percentage of the deposits flew, flew out of that in like three days. That's amazing, right? Yeah, you you have to uh, look. I I am not someone. If you, if you look at like who was getting bailed out, equity holders got wiped out, creditors pretty much got wiped out. You know, the depositors definitely got uh, bailed out without a doubt. You know, and it's it's an interesting breed of depositors. You know, it's it's not you know kind of the average Joe uh, that has you know fifty thousand over the, over the uh, minimum yeah. minimum requirements per se. So that that should you know understandably you know cause some frustration. Uh, but Tim, are, are taxpayers on the hook? Only for the, for the difference. Valley? No, the Fed's got it. Well, they'll they'll raise the they'll raise the premiums on the banks. Um, so the banks will end up paying for it over time. But don't forget, like you know, it's only the excess over the assets that they're able to realize. Um, that the taxpayer theoretically would be on the hook for, but that normally goes, the banks normally pay for it uh, via an insurance premium um, that gets collected over time. So I, I think that could be worked out. But to your point, Jake, I think realistically, you can't you can't have an implicit guarantee on just like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and then not do the same thing. 
because the world is different after that. It is. It's a huge change. It, it's just, you know, I mean, we saw the same thing with the GSEs. Uh, it's it's just not realistic to to have the status quo, you know, as it is. And so I, I hope we don't have to learn that the most painful way possible. Does it feel like if the market, you know, if bonds are down, bonds have their worst year in whatever, like history or modern history over the last last year, equities just sort of equities had a bad year but like equities have had lots of worse years than that it seems to be like equities somehow just skated completely over the, the speed past the graveyard well yeah that's kind of how i feel and when we've seen this in the past the fed will keep on raising rates until something breaks and then really probably what i'm talking about is the market like individual regional banks blowing up probably that's that they can rationalize that but at some point the market cracks and then go back and look at what they've done every single time the market's cracked. They, they, they lower rates, but it doesn't have, like the first count them, like five or six rate cuts won't do anything to the market. I don't, you know, the John Hussman's theory about why the market rallied in March 2009 was that they stopped having the banks having to mark to market. He says that little that accounting was change was the, was the biggest. It, it did, but it wasn't, it wasn't that, that was because it was a stupid accounting. It was a stupid accounting policy in many ways because. What happened was it was a self-fulfilling prophecy where, um, you know, the the securities, the the credit default swaps, and the the RMBS uh, were trading at such extreme levels that basically when they had to mark to market, uh, it showed that the banks had to keep raising capital, and then to do that, you're issuing stock at lower and low, lower prices. But it was all a lot of uneconomic stuff because what happened to those RMBS securities in the following years? You know, they were some of the best securities you could have owned. Um, so so the prices were uneconomic. And if you want your banking system to be like a day trading environment, I mean, if you want it to be basically a day trader with everything marked to market, I understand that investment banking, retail banking and investment banking are two different things. I think that there's legitimate reasons for not, you know, if, if you want someone to loan 30 years on a on a mortgage or or you know, 10 years on a business loan to a small business, you don't necessarily want that loan mark to market, uh, you know, to foster capital, capital uh, availability, in my opinion. Tim, speaking of uh, changes, do you think that they will consider changing that that held to maturity rule where maybe they can, they can release things out of held to maturity without repricing the entire portfolio? Oh, that's a good question. That 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 could be possible. I mean, I definitely think you're going to see, you know, regulators and and government officials focus on that. Maybe maybe you have the same uh, requirements that the big banks have. You know, I mean, where where they have to they have to reflect it on capital, but give them time, you know, to build up to that level, um, to where to where they're able to do that, and that does increase the costs, um, of of of. The banks and ultimately that flows through to depositors and stuff like that. But yeah, I think I think that that would be a reasonable thing to look at, and you just give them you know a few years to build up to that. Um, but the immediate thing is just getting out of getting out of uh, the immediate crisis uh, because there is one. I mean, you know they they did they guaranteed all the deposits, and right now it's it's implicit, and I think that you know you have to address that. You can't just like leave it open-ended because then, you know, bear bears and, and uh, you know, stock market, uh, you know, traders, they're, they're going to, they're going to uh, manufacture a crisis that might not necessarily exist. 
there's kind of a Chesterton fence question to this that I wonder about, which is if it's such a good idea to insure all of these deposits, why haven't we been doing this all along for hundreds of years that we've had banking and, or at least since 1913, let's say. Probably because it's just, you know, they don't want anything that favors the wealthy, you know, is, is, is going to be, you know, spark, spark, uh, partisanship and and polarization i mean most people you know don't don't aren't impacted by having balances over you know the the minimum so i mean that's what's so crazy about this if if this was just a normal regional bank that had some mishaps and it's just a regular kind of deposit base and i'm not saying anything bad about the deposit base it's just it's not a regular deposit base and then they build it out that then maybe okay hey we did this for one mistake that's not going to keep happening I don't know how you do that for this particular one and then, you know, not not do it for the other regionals. I don't blame depositors in general. Like, I mean, I, I just don't think like I, I, your mom shouldn't need to pick if if the bank is is sound. That's yeah, kind of the regular Your mom's shop. not putting 250,000 plus in the bank, right? Like we're not protecting grandmas here. No, I mean, I don't know. No, the no, they're is, not. There yeah. should be sophisticated enough to solve this problem, right? If you're if you're managing that much money. Do you do you deal with this problem at all? I mean, I, I, I don't have I don't store sums of money like that, so I don't know, but I don't I know mean, what I would do. I definitely do. That's I don't you don't keep that much cash in a in a bank. Yeah, internet call that's, account. That's foolhardy. Yeah, that's fair. Well, yeah, and inflation. I mean, obviously, you've got to adjust those numbers because there's a lot more money sloshing around right now. So payroll and and taxes and things like that are are bigger. I just I don't know. I don't I don't blame depositors. I don't think that's the people to blame. The FDIC it's paid through through um you know bank insurance premiums. They'll raise those levies and and you know the banks are heavily heavily regulated and obviously there probably was some regulatory lapses there um so i mean i don't i just i just don't think like bailing out yes these depositors got bailed out i normally don't think that i don't think that's the worst thing in the world when depositors get bailed out i don't want the executives or the banks or the equity holders or or you know they shouldn't be bailed out in that would be my opinion i, I mean the I fdic could just that. guarantee them all right by there's a cost to guaranteeing them. It's insurance on, on those deposits. You just charge that that fee. You make it mandatory. Right, and there'd be thing. less there'd be less problems if they did it now because they might have to do it now. I mean, because if you get a few more bank runs, you know, when people realize that there's money to be made through doing it, not saying that that was planned. I'm saying that that what that was something that easily could happen. Um, then then the cost will actually be higher. You know, so it's like you got to realize right now there there's a problem where, you know, there's this implicit, you know, guarantee. And so the ultimate cost will probably be a lot lower. Even TARP, for as much as people hated TARP, the actual the actual losses were, were pretty negligible relative to the you know level of crisis. The problem there was that executives and people like that did not go to jail. But for the most part, you know, equity holders were wiped out or virtually wiped out. Um so, I mean, it's defining, I think defining bailouts kind of like defining risk. You've got to define who's getting bailed out and why. I mean, I don't think equity holders of Silicon Valley Bank feel like they got a bailout. Rightfully so. And on that note, 
Mm. Thanks, gents. Thanks, Guys. Tim. Thanks, if uh, folks want to get in contact with you, Tim, how do they go about doing that? Uh, Have my, a shout out. Yeah, my website's ttvalueinvesting.com. Um, so feel free to reach out to me on there. And uh, also my Twitter handle, which I think is Tim Travis Value, but I don't even know for sure. <laughs> Not I'll the link biggest. it up in the show.